This podcast touches upon some complex topics. The creators have endeavored to deal with the issues honestly and with the sensitivity they deserve. They have also reached out to all key players for their comments and have sought to present a balanced and factual account. We ask that listeners consider each episode in its full context. This was an attempt by a religiously motivated group who shared a strong religious fervor to enter civil space, take over an NGO it disapproved of, and impose their agenda. This risked a broader spillover into relations between different religions. AWARE's extraordinary general meeting, that life-changing day, took place on 2nd May 2009. Three months later, though, the saga was still on everyone's minds, including Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung. This is his National Day rally speech on 16th of August that year. After it was over, after the dust had settled, I spoke to the religious leaders, first the Christians, and then all the religious leaders, all faiths, including the Christians again, so that everybody would understood where we stood and what our concerns were, so that we can continue to work together to strengthen our racial and religious harmony. PM Lee was typically circumspect. He didn't come down too clearly on any one side. But that didn't matter. For most Singaporeans, this speech closed the book on the AWARE saga. It had been a thrilling few months, a rare national display of feeling, culminating in a dramatic win for one party and a somewhat painful loss for another. Although, which side won and which lost? Depending on who you asked back then, you might have received different answers. More than a decade down the road, it's still unclear. We are in a good position. It's a Garden of Eden state. It's one where you're happy, where things are working, and where if you leave the Garden of Eden, you cannot get back in again. So please stay there. We cheered, we booed, and then we voted. And then the result was in our favour. It was just like, wow. It was really like, this is what democracy feels like. To cling on to one's own point of view dogmatically and force it down the throat of another person, I think that's the root of the problem. We have to worry and we have to keep our eye on the ball. What does it mean to protect a secular space? What does it mean to protect a democratic space? I'm Bharati Jagdish. This is Saga, Episode 12, The Winners. The day after winning a wear back, I think, was the first day I felt hungry <laughs> in a long time. So finally, I remember we had a lunch. We had a nice lunch here. The food tasted really good. For Aware's old guard, the aftermath of the EGM felt a little like the last scene in a fairy tale. The dragon was vanquished, the castle defended, the townspeople rescued. Dana Lam was the freshly inaugurated president of Aware, a title she had first held in 2000. She looked forward to settling into the role, a role that just two months before she had never dreamed of taking up an opportunity to try and set things back in order. At the same time, not exactly setting it back the way it was, but to try and give it enough of shape for it to carry on changing and, and moving forward. Parties everywhere. 
an old guard supporter invited a hundred others to her huge house in Sumbawang. And Callan Thumb, the volunteer who live-tweeted the EGM from Starbucks, went out for a night of carousing with his saga comrades, some of them he had only ever met online. We got drunk to a point where, like, when the bill came, everybody pulled out 50 bucks to put it on. And the waiter came back and said, um, guys, you have overpaid us by about 150 bucks. So I don't know how you're going to settle the change. They ended up just giving it all to Martha Lee, a member of the new, new Aware Exco. So we kind of like, you take donations, right? So, yeah, we do. Well, here, here you go. At that point in time, none of us could count anymore. It's like NS. It's like we've suffered this together. We've pulled through it. We've done what we needed to do. So that bond is, is real. And I would be very sad if I were to not be able to speak to anyone from this group ever again. They're friends. I don't usually say that about a lot of people. All the EGM memes you'd expect to pop up, popped up. Clips of Sally Ang yelling, shut up and sit down, got creatively remixed. Brands released corny ads. You bought your Subaru last year. So? So you don't qualify. Eh, you're not being inclusive. I'll call my mother, my sister, my girlfriend. It pays to be aware. Find out why at the Subaru showroom. Shut up and sit down. Sales of t-shirts with quotes from the EGM went through the roof. Shut up and sit down. Feminist mentor. Feminist mentee. Feminist mentos. Like the sweet. Yeah, I bought one feminist mentee t-shirt. I bought the Aware SG hashtag one for myself in black. The shut up and sit down, I bought two. One for myself, one for my wife. However, it was not all spontaneous donations and jokey t-shirts after the EGM. Truth be told, Aware was a pile of rubble. And Dana's new, new exco had a lot of pieces to pick up. First up... Dana, Margie and company found that their predecessors had left them with a parting gift. During the new guard's time in office, someone had uploaded to a file-sharing website. All the confidential files related to the comprehensive sexuality education program that we had run, and which was the hijacker's main issue with us. So details of the trainers, uh, details of the teachers, their names, the schools they were at. In other words... A doxing. Trainers who had conducted AWARE's Comprehensive Sexuality Education, or CSE, program found their contact information all over the internet. They started to be harassed. So did a teacher who had coordinated the program at one of the schools. We, we made a police report, but of course police can't do anything about it. And, you know, the more we write to one website and it appears in another website, and then we run to another website and it appears to another and another website. And the sorrows weren't over for AWARE's CSE programme. It had been under mounting scrutiny during the lead-up to the EGM. Initially, after Teo decried what she read as insidious gay content, the Ministry of Education put out a statement defending the syllabus. They hadn't received a single complaint from any student or parent, they said. Conservative parents knew an invitation when they saw one. Juhim remembers the avalanche of complaints that ensued. That was kind of like a trigger for the parents now associated with right-wing Christians to start sending the complaints in. So on 21st May, Education Minister Ng Eng Hen released a new statement. 
he was suspending AWARE's sexuality education program. And now, the Education Ministry says there should be more stringent processes to ensure that content reflect the mainstream values of Singapore society, where the married heterosexual family unit is a social norm. In fact, the Ministry of Education suspended all its external sex ed providers. Henceforth, all such vendors needed to be vetted by the ministry itself. The next year, MOE announced a new roster of approved vendors. Four out of the six were overtly Christian organizations, such as Focus on the Family. This was a real blow to those who believed that sex education should be secular. But it didn't look like Dana, Maggie, Karina, and their exco could do anything about it. It was, <laughs> it was annoying. It made me sad and angry at the same time. So much energy has gone to the research and the design of this program that answered a need that was there. This is now sacrificed. So, AWARE CSE program fell by the wayside, where it has lain idle for 11 years. It was a, it was a loss. I think it was a big loss for the whole country. But a big win, perhaps, for a certain faction of the country. They might have lost control of AWARE, but to hear the new guard tell it, the suspension of the CSE program was what they had been fighting for all along. Miss Charlotte Wong told today that MOE is doing the right thing. AWARE keeps shouting about providing choice and empowering the youth in decision-making in their sexual life. On the other hand, Comprehensive Sexuality Education, CSE, does not talk about abstinence. They steer clear from abstinence as a choice. Which was not true. Saying that she felt a sense of calm after hearing the news, she added that if the CSE sticks to the MOE guidelines and caters to a majority of conservative parents, we shall be all right. Gillian Ko, Deputy Director of Research at Institute of Policy Studies, spoke with Tio Su Mien shortly after the saga. She remembers Tio expressing satisfaction about the fate of the CSE syllabus as well. She did cite how if they had not had that time in AWARE, they would not have been able to get the evidence of what AWARE had been doing, especially with regard to the sexuality program. You couldn't have access to the instructor's notes, if you describe as open the cupboards and, you know, look through the material. When Maggie emailed Dr. Tio in February of 2019 to invite her onto this podcast, Tio replied, Dear Miss Thomas, thank you for your kind note. The aware matter is past history. It settled various points for posterity. She claimed that aware had in 2009 been, quote, in breach of its fiduciary duty to MOE, breaching its contract to provide comprehensive sex education, a claim that the ministry had never made. She then reiterated that, quote, the basic building block of Singapore society is the heterosexual family, and that, quote, the education system in Singapore should be in alignment with the basic building block. And with that, the feminist mentor politely declined to be interviewed. The difference between a comprehensive and non-comprehensive sex education program is absolutely critical, says Juhim, a mother herself. CSE has been repeatedly shown by a number of different research to be effective. And what majority of parents probably want, which is for them to delay first sexual contact, to have fewer partners and to use condoms and practice safe sex and indulge in fewer risky sexual behaviours. And it's been shown consistently to achieve this end. 
And then conversely, if they've only received abstinence-only sex education, they tend not to use condoms and there's no effect on almost anything else. Abstinence-only education, it has zero impact on risky behaviour. This is the bitter pill AWARE has swallowed for the past decade. The fact that a generation of Singaporeans has lost out on potentially life-changing education. We have heard from kids that are now grown up, they're like, wow, that was when I was uh, 14, 15. Uh, you guys coming in to do that program was great. Being empowered with the knowledge of what informed consent is and knowing how to act in these situations where this issue comes up, they're not receiving this education. So, yeah, I feel it's a real shame. I'm angry at the situation as well. But we think that looking at how things are, it is just better to train the parents. So this is what we have decided to do. In 2018, Juhim and Karina worked to launch a new sex education workshop at AWARE, this time for parents. It's called Birds and Bees. To date, it has trained more than 150 parents. It's a workshop for parents to find out where, what their values are and what they actually want to communicate and also to work out what they want to tell their children, whatever their age, about sex, about relationships, about consent. So hopefully parents are going to see the value in having comprehensive sex ed and there'll be more children who are given scientifically accurate, medically accurate facts and empowered to make their own decisions. It's, it's, it's kind of small, we have you know, one room of parents at any one time, but I believe that with the interest and the talking about it, then you know, it can create ripple effects. It will take time again, but social change takes time. For Singapore's LGBT community, the AWARE EGM in 2009 felt like the first real win in a long, long time. Those eight hours were a glimpse of a Singapore that could be. A Singapore where integrity, justice and compassion were what mattered, not bigotry. Then the dream ended, and they woke up again to a world that still saw them as criminals. This is Ching. Ching volunteered as an event photographer for the old guard at the EGM. It was an eight-hour adrenaline rush. I was just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm in front of this. I'm so privileged to be able to witness this up front, you know. I was just like, wow, you know, fangirling half the time. Like, wow, these guys are like, you know, the, the, the legit old-school activists. I mean, okay, they're not that old, okay, but you know what I mean, right? But Ching almost paid a price for that privilege a few days later. She was having dinner with her parents, her brother and his wife. The aware saga came up in the conversation. To Ching's anger, her brother and sister-in-law dismissed it as an affair for, quote, a bunch of lesbians. And the thing is that I was out to my brother then. But his wife decided to use it against me at the ta table. They were, we were all conversing in English and because my dad and my mom weren't you know, like fluent at all in English. They didn't know what we were talking about at all. So they kind of threatened to out me at the table. They were like, oh, tell them, tell them what AWARE does. I said, well, I mean, they're championing for, you know, gender equality, what's wrong with that? They're like, oh, the sex ad, you know, that they did, you know, they're, they're promoting gay sex. I said, that's not promoting gay sex, it's teaching people how to protect themselves, you know? And they're like, well, you can tell them in Chinese, see what they say. Well, I was really just really, really horrified. 
And then from the, that day onwards, it really affected our relationship because they really literally almost got me kicked out when I was not ready to be out. And it was, it was terrifying for me. Someone else caught in a painful EGM hangover was Alexandra Sorrenti. Alex had made a stirring speech at the EGM. We're not here because we are lesbians. We're not here because, you know, uh, we are sexual perverts of some sort. All right? We are here because we were deeply troubled by how this executive committee came to power. We are here because we are deeply troubled by the usurpation of civic space. As a designated seat warmer, Alex hadn't planned to speak at all. But like many others, she was too moved by the proceedings to hold back. With her buzz cut and a red bandana around her neck, Alex cut a distinctive figure that day. So much so that she ended up on all the local news channels. I remember my daughter was very proud of it at some point. Uh, when that was just after it happened, she was like, oh, this is my mom! <laughs> and yet, the happiness of that day was tempered by a nagging worry. Um, yeah, I had a lot of people, you know, who had very mixed feelings about my participation in the EGM. And I actually had a few people who said, how's it going to look? Because you know what the hijackers are saying about AWARE, right? That he had been taken over by lesbians. And then there's you. You look really lesbian. I mean, I don't know what a lesbian person looks like, like okay? Because, you know, my wife is very lesbian and she looks nothing like me. But you, you confirm, you tick every checkbox, right? Of how lesbians are supposed to look like and behave. Um, and I confess that I... I gave their objections serious thought. Alex was in a cruel catch-22 throughout the saga. So if I'm foregrounded too much, then we confirm the narrative that AWARE has been taken over by lesbian people. A homosexual agenda, whatever that is. I mean, I'd be delighted to show you my phone and show you how mundane my agenda is, okay? But if we don't stand up for AWARE, the enemy wins. <laughs> because they have effectively removed a source of support that is important for AWARE's continuation. To support or not to support, either way, we lose. Do we give in to that fear? Or do I trust that there will be Singaporeans who will be able to hear the message despite the messenger? And I didn't know what the answer to that would be. At the EGM, Alex had decided not to give in to the fear, to trust in Singaporeans and to speak up for her rights. It had been glorious. Now that the moment was over, though, the doubt was creeping in again. Was her continued involvement with AWARE a liability for the organisation? I'll make the confession and I'll wear the flag for this. I actually told some members of the old guard uh, that for a short period after the EGM that they needed to distance themselves from me and from my community as a strategic move. I advised them that, yeah, and that was me as a gay person. 
I felt that that narrative needed to go away in the public imagination first. I didn't agree with it, but I advised it. It broke Alex's heart to say this. I wish that we didn't live in that world, but um, that was the world that we lived in. Yeah, so it's kind of hard, you know, you backstab your own community about this. Yeah. Indeed, everyone was grappling with this same question. Here's Ju Him. People were saying, do we need to dial back our public support of LGBT? Um, what do we do? Do we want to allow the public discourse to focus exclusively on LGBT? You know, so there was a lot of discussion and to what extent are certain values non-negotiable? And if we try to negotiate on that, we, we become less. You know, we have betrayed ourselves. Beyond Ching and Alex, others in Singapore's lesbian community had their own dissatisfactions. After all, many of them had rallied behind AWARE in a time of need, at their own personal risk. So understandably, members of the gay community came to our support, felt that we should pay back in some way. There was some feedback that some members of the gay community felt that we owed it to them to, to champion their cause more. It was the age-old aware predicament once again. Too radical, too safe, too hot, too cold. Never just right. Finally, aware, lesbian group Sayoni and a few other organisations held a sort of tribal council. The conclusion was that aware would continue to lend support to those groups, but fairly discreetly. You know, it's, it's like if they had something specific they needed AWARE's help on, we would we would do it. But otherwise, we were not in a position to forefront the lesbian cause at that point. Yeah, to this day, it's just like, maybe we took the expedient route. After such a huge battle, everybody was just battle-weary and we're like, we, I don't think we had the stomach to fight this battle. And, and I think... For me, personally, and I think maybe other people, we kind of just made the excuse that it was only temporary. It was quite a different climate, and the fear felt real. Say, you know, we really did not want to be seen as a mainly LGBT group because there's so much other work that we had that we wanted to do. It would take aware a long while to shake off the trauma of the saga. If you ask me what are the three top things that AWARE is working on today, this is not one of them, right? And that's how it is. But if you say, will you take a stand for any uh, LGBT issue? Yes, we are right there. We will make a press statement. We will speak on it. I think that we have actually um, been a lot bolder in our public statements on this. Amid this existential wrestling, another social movement was finding its feet that May. Pink Dot, Singapore's first gay pride event. How Pink Dot started is, is a complicated story. I would say the catalyst was when uh, 
the police relaxed the rules for Honglin Park. Remember Alan Xia? We spoke to him in episode 4 about his public petition in 2007 to repeal section 377A, the law that criminalizes gay sex. Alan is a co-founder of Pink Dot. The venue he's talking about, Honglin Park, has been the traditional site over the years of many political rallies and other rabble-rousing events. In 2008, the rules for the park's famous Speaker's Corner were updated. So it used to be you had to um, register uh, and tell them what you were going to speak about before you were allowed to speak in Speaker's Corner. Um, And uh, what they did was relax the rules where you didn't have to tell them what you were going to speak about. And the police actually had held a press conference uh, and they said, and to announce this, and they said, and you can even now have a gay pride parade. Gay activists, too, knew an invitation when they saw one. One activist, Dr. Roy Tan, immediately decided he would organize a gay pride event at Honglin Park. So other activists then coalesced sort of around Roy, and uh, out of all the conversations and, and discussions, Pink Dot was born. Alan and company were very careful not to brand Pink Dot as a protest or a march. Instead, it would be a celebratory, family-friendly picnic. Let's come together, form a human pink dot in the middle of Honglin Park, and that the growth of that dot every year uh, would symbolise society's growing acceptance of the LGBTQ community. Still, as controversial as gay rights were in Singapore, would anyone show up at all? The very first Pink Dot was scheduled for Saturday, 16th May 2009, coincidentally, a mere two weeks after the AWARE EGM. What blew us away was, uh, you know, about 2,500 people showed up. And progressively, every year after that, I think we broke our own uh, record in terms of the number of people that showed up. Alan thinks that all this energy was a direct runoff from the AWARE EGM's success. The fact that it had a a happy outcome, I think, was sort of a launch pad that went straight to two weeks later. I think definitely the first Pink Dot benefited hugely from uh, that energy. One of the people at that first Pink Dot was Ching, whose participation at AWARE's EGM almost got her outed to her parents. I think for a lot of us, when we went to the very first Pink Dot at Holland Park, we were like, oh my God, are we going to get arrested? You know, we were all like fearful. It kind of reminded me of that day being at, you know, Suntech as well, being at the EGM. And I was just like, oh my god, things are changing in Singapore. Ching showed up again for Pink Dot 2 in 2010. Then Pink Dot 3. Then the third year, I became an individual sponsor for Pink Dot. Subsequently, then I joined as the organising committee. Yeah, and kind of never looked back since then. Now, she's one of the key organisers of Pink Dot, which has celebrated 12 editions. At peak attendance, Pink Dot has seen 28,000 people filling up Honglin Park. If you tell me that 10 years later, there'll be this amount of people in the park, I would literally laugh in your face if you told me that's going to happen. Since 2009, Ching has come out to her parents. Her mum subsequently became an aware donor. I'm glad the EGM happened. I think if the EGM didn't happen, I probably will still be clubbing every weekend. <laughs> That's, you know, like, you know, it's, it's kind of like I found meaning in activism. And the aware EGM honestly gave me 
you know, that catalyst that, that I needed to go into it. I'm very grateful for pioneers like, you know, Constance, Margaret and, and Joachim and you know, Karina and all. They are a true inspiration, you know, and their name is going to go down in history as like, wow, you know, truly amazing women that a lot of us will look up to. Thank you, Josie Lau and the Pussycat Dolls. <laughs> as for Alex Sorrenti, she too finally overcame her doubts after almost not attending Pink Dot herself. Again, I was dragging away, possibly into Pink Dot, right? It's the optics of the thing. But, you know, one of my friends pulled me up and, and she said, Woman, what are you thinking? Right? She said, you know, I don't care what the optics are. This is not something that you can afford to not go to. Because like, I have been helping younger lesbians with their struggles. If you don't turn up, what sort of signal, what sort of message would you be sending to these younger people? Screw it, thought Alex. Aware will survive. Those young people might not. So she went to Pink Dot, stood up and was counted. Alex, her wife and their daughter have made a conscious decision to talk openly about their family. To actually challenge the one narrative that I think is deeply problematic, which is that we are against family values. I have been married now for 18 years. We have been monogamous all our lives. So when we hear this narrative, oh, lesbians, gay people, pedophiles, multiple hookups, they sleep around every day. I'm like, who are you talking about? We've had a marriage that has lasted longer than some of our heterosexual friends. But there's still a long way to go. And the fact that we have still not decriminalised 377A is a stain on our national conscience. You know, that, that whole episode in a way has changed me. Oh, I get all emotional, even just, even just talking about it now. Um, that was something that really moved me during the Aware Saga. Um, I was very proud to be Singaporean. And I think when people say that Singaporeans are not ready for 377A, not ready for all sorts of things, I think back on that day, we might know actually we're ready. We are ready. You know, it's just that we've not been given an opportunity to show or to live up to our readiness. And that's, that's the tragedy of Singapore. And the hope. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the hope. Yes, I probably need to clean my tears. <laughs> <laughs> we invited the key members of the New Guard to be interviewed for this podcast, but most did not get back to us. In fact, the New Guard have almost never spoken publicly on the events of 2009. So as much as we'd like to do a Where Are They Now segment here, our information is piecemeal at best. We do know that Josie Lau left her job at DBS shortly after the saga. No surprises there, given the public criticisms the bank made about her conduct. Later, in 2009, she joined Overseas Union Enterprise, or OUE, the real estate company run at the time by Tio Su Mian's husband. 
One of the few people Dr. Thieu and Josie did interview with was Gillian Ko of the Institute of Policy Studies. The interviews were for Gillian's chapter in Terence Chong's 2011 book on the Aware Saga. We asked Gillian for whatever insights she could provide into the women's thoughts and feelings about the saga. She remembers Dr. Thieu in the interview being not regretful, but reflective. If she had to do it again, how would she do things differently? She'd wish she'd brought together a more diverse group of friends to suggest that it's not just a very small, tiny group that's necessarily informed by one religious kind of uh, approach, uh, one religious organisation or community. Um, so if you want to do that, then you definitely have to have more dialoguing, more discourse, and then a setting out of concerns. Why were they so unclear about their true motivations at the beginning? Did they no, give I you think an insight? they were clear in their motivations. Um, they weren't but transparent. Not spelt out, but not spelt out in a form that you publish in a pamphlet. We can't sort of... Uh, really impose on them an expectation that they're so well-studied, so well-informed, so clever about being, you know, people mobilizers and, and, you know, there's a kind of proper way in which to do such things, yeah. Tio Siu Mian herself said that she'd been very, very conscious about how gay activism has been uh, taking place in, in the West. That was very clear. She'd been thinking about the general area, general issue of gay rights campaigns for a very, very, very long time. Over the past decade, Dr. Teo has continued to write letters to the press any time gay rights come up in the news. In 2018, in an open letter to the Education Minister, she wrote, quote, those who advocate the decriminalization of Section 377A, they're also advocating pedophilia, incest, necrophilia, and bestiality. We should be aware of the insidious ways in which the proponents of this agenda seek to infiltrate our system. MOE had been infiltrated once in its sex education." Unquote. She's referring to AWARE's CSE program, in case you thought she might have mellowed in her 80s. Maybe change is a task for a new generation. In July 2019, an oblique but friendly-ish overture came our way via a Facebook post by Stephanie Yuan Tio. Steph is a prominent lawyer and Tio Sumian's daughter-in-law. In her post, Steph reflected on how the Aware Saga had unfortunately further polarised Singaporean society. But she also wrote that the saga had an important upside. It caused gay friends to come out and to share their struggles with her. Steph ended her post with an anecdote. I quote, When my son was 15, he asked me how I would respond if he came home one day and told me he was gay. As a Christian, I had always wondered how I would feel about that. But in that moment, as a mother, I had no hesitation. I told him that I would always love him and that he and his partner would always be welcome in my home and in my heart. Unquote. That sentiment from a member of the Tio clan is significant. Something else. In 2018, the actress Pam Wee, a vocal aware supporter, had an unexpected post-show encounter with the daughter of a New Guard member. Recently, I won't say which committee member, but one of the new committee members that did 
take over. Her daughter came up to me after a show that I had performed at. And when she revealed who she was, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not sure where this is going. But uh, very tearfully, she apologised for what her mother did. And I felt that that was very powerful. But there was no need for her to apologise for what her parents did. For Pam, this was eye-opening. For the first time, 10 years later, I actually had to think about what their children felt about their actions. And it gave me a little window into, okay, so just because the parent thinks like that, it doesn't necessarily follow that the children think like, think like that. And this is a young adult. So I think mindsets are slowly changing. A lot of what was happening with Aware Saga over here actually was ahead of its time. Tong Yi, the social entrepreneur and Christian we spoke to in episode 5, has seen major changes in religious discourse over the past decade. Singapore in 2009, she's a very different Singapore from what it is right now, right? The societal conversation around uh, power or power dynamics or actually uh, who gets to speak, who doesn't get to speak over here. I think many Christians today, if it happened today, okay, uh, would be up in arms about this and actually will say this is actually very unfair or even unethical practice. In the short game, you win some, I don't know, token champion over LGBT right, uh, issues or all things like that. But in the long game, where you're meant to be uh, people within society that demonstrate trust or that create trust among each other, I think you've lost the long game. And it's that long game that religious communities are now struggling with. The congregation, by sheer virtue of how much exposure they have to different viewpoints, are becoming more progressive. So the church itself now has an identity versus relevance question. Do we stick to the core identity of who we are, or do we play the game to start staying relevant? When I'm even speaking to Christian leaders today, I think most of them are in dilemmas over their own systems, their own survival. I think a lot of them over here in their private moments, they always ask, why is God not more clear with a guidebook? I don't know, I think with all this complexity, we are as looking for miracles as anybody else. Yeah. If appealing to progressive young congregants is Christianity's new challenge, how have some churches tried to address it? I initially didn't feel like the church was a safe place because homosexuality wasn't talked about. And when it was mentioned, it was talked about in a very, I thought, unhelpful way. It was always the issue, but not the person. A rainbow icon, pretty handwritten script in rainbow colours, pretty people surrounded by rainbows. If you were to skim through its various online facades, you might mistake True Love Is for another LGBT-affirming, pride-aligned social movement. Even the slogans that appear in its videos employ terms associated with progressives. Quote, True love does not ignore the truth and deny the facts. Shame dies when stories are told in safe spaces. Don't just come out, come home. Only if you actually pay attention to what's being said in the videos or notice the churches named in the credits, only then might you catch on to the real nature of true love is. My team and I journey with Christians struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction. We shower them with love, acceptance, tears and truth. We also journey with their families and church community. 
true love is, is a movement of people who believe their homosexuality needs to be overcome or neutralized or suppressed before they can live a good, holy life. It's a service run by 316 Church in affiliation with Church of Our Saviour. True Love Is encourages people who are, quote, living the gay lifestyle to give that up and find peace in God. This is achieved by either abstaining from sex entirely, or in some cases, having heterosexual sex only. To argue that same-sex attraction can be overcome, True Love Is has produced testimonials with a bunch of spokespeople, complete with inspirational music and tasteful cinematography. Each person talks about the horrors they encountered before they renounced homosexuality. Usually, this involves some combination of abuse, heartbreak, STIs, or meaningless sex. I got into many relationships and hundreds of intimate encounters. That's very common in the gay circle. At 17, now I found out that my boyfriend was cheating on me. The slickly produced videos show bright, sincere people associating all manner of human foibles, loneliness, infidelity, violence, lust, depression, disease, with being gay. Never mind that straight people are as vulnerable to those things as gay people. The same lines echo across the videos. I, I may not be free from my desires, but I no longer well, I may want still struggle to with homosexuality, but I no longer desire the acts upon it. Ever since True Love Is was launched in early 2018, observers like Alex Sorrenti have seen it as the next evolution of conservative messaging. They sound affirming of LGBT and differently gendered people. But at the end of the day, their welcome is a poisoned apple. Love the person, not the behaviour. So at the end of the day, it's all about changing the self still. And what worries me is that they have come back in a much more insidious form. And that scares me. God has set me free from guilt and self-condemnation. And I wish that for everyone. Gone are the anonymous chain emails, references to a task force blithely posted online, the conspiracy theory-laden PowerPoint presentations. But are all these pretty rainbow-coloured memes just another Trojan horse. I mean, you have to give them props. Robin Rayom, the old guard's Twitter maestro. They've learned, and they're very strong now. Their media campaigns are really quite slick now. So they know that in this day and age, you can't come across as like an old-school homophobe, right? We love you. We're not anti-gay. We just want to cut the gay out of you, <laughs> like... We're sorry if you hate yourself. We don't have anything to do with you hating yourself. You know, if you hate yourself because you're gay, we can help you with that. A quote comes to mind from an interview Dr. Teo gave to the newspaper Lian He Tao Pao shortly after the EGM. In the interview, as per usual, Teo denies that she premeditated the aware takeover. Then she says something interesting. If she were to really attempt a takeover of a secular organisation, she would not be so obvious as to employ agents from the same church. I would be a real strategist, she says. I would organise a rainbow coalition like them. True Love Is has sparked a lot of online outrage. Critics call it conversion therapy, 
i.e. the institutionalized attempt to change a person's sexual orientation from gay or bi to straight. True Love Is has strenuously denied it is conversion therapy, which is outlawed in many places around the world. It insists that its participants have the right to choose how to live their personal lives, no matter that those choices are influenced by church doctrine. It emphasizes that many gay Christians have found True Love Is to be a supportive and welcoming space. It says that those who criticize are themselves being intolerant and exclusionary, the same argument used to defend the new God's views in 2009. I am confused because those who want to exclude our stories are often the very ones who also advocate for love and inclusiveness. If you think my story is harming you, what about you trying to silence my life journey? Isn't that harming me? Please stop assuming. Please stop speaking over my story. Give me credit that I have come to my own convictions and decisions for myself. Whatever you make of true love is, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Many of our interviewees talk about a certain evangelical conviction growing quietly in Singapore. Flexing its influence, poking its head around secularism's back door. You might glimpse it in the strength of the wear white movement of the far right Muslims and Christians, who band together every year to protest Pink Dot. Or in the National Library Board's decision to pull three children's books from shelves after complaints that they were pro gay. There have been no more surprise press conferences at the Raffleston Club. But it would be naive to take that as a sign of retirement. More accurately, perhaps, an ability to learn from mistakes, to eschew the spotlight, to get the job done. Throughout the world, there's a tendency for all religions to become more radical and fundamentalist. Mm. This is true in Christianity, but it is true in the Hinduism, as we see in India. It's true in Islam, of course, we see that all over the world. Buddhism. One morning in July 2019, Margie Thomas went to meet Professor Tommy Koh. Professor Koh is Singapore's preeminent diplomat and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs ambassador at large. He was Singapore's permanent representative to the United Nations for many years. He's also a decorated lawyer. In fact, he succeeded Teo Su Mien as Dean of NUS Law back in the 70s. Look at America. The Republican Party has successfully weaponized Christianity against the Democrats. The real danger is unscrupulous politicians will use religion as a weapon against their opponents. And it's surprising that many highly educated and sophisticated Christians in Singapore have embraced the point of view of the evangelical. And should the liberals or moderates, whether you're uh, religious or, or, or not, should we be concerned about what appears to be a growing extremist movement? You may be concerned, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. Currently in the Singapore establishment, Ko is the most outspoken critic of Section 377A. In fact, after India repealed their Section 377 in June 2018, Cole wrote a Facebook post suggesting that Singaporeans try again. 
The post prompted a whole new set of competing petitions in an echo of 2007. It's actually a legacy of the British colonial era, you know. It's crazy. The mother country long ago abolished this. But in many of the ex-colonies, people feel invested in this law, you know. And they're very reluctant to do away with it when it's so obviously anti-science, irrational, and no rational basis. If you don't get what a big deal it is to hear a government official say that on record, you don't know Singapore. I was hoping that um, our judiciary, like the judiciary in, the, in India, the United States, Hong Kong and elsewhere, would declare the law unconstitutional. But I think that's not very likely to happen. They make a convenient compromise and say, we will keep the law in the books, but we will not enforce it. Lawyers like me are not comfortable because we feel that it brings discredit to the law when you have a law in the book which you publicly declare that you will not enforce. Though he recognises how powerful the Christian right has become in Singapore society, Professor Cole believes that the tide will turn one day. I think history will move on and they will be left behind, you know. Mm. Even in Singapore, when I talk to the young people in my college and university, it's clear to me that it's a matter of time before um, a majority of Singaporeans will say, let's do away with this archaic law. One generation? Two generations? Uh, sooner than that, I think. On 4th May 2019, 10 years and two days after the extraordinary general meeting that sealed its fate, aware through an anniversary party, a few saga superstars, including Constance Singham, spoke to the hundred or so people crowded in the aware centre. For Connie, the whole affair was bittersweet. She's not fully over what happened in 2009. She might never be. For two days, I was, my stomach was churning and I had to take anti-acid before I came. Even when Margie told me that they were doing this, I said, Margie, you're going to remind me I'm going to go through that trauma all over again. But perhaps trauma can be productive if lessons are learned. Right after the saga, AWARE made some much-needed updates to its constitution. Across the country, other organisations of all stripes quickly did the same. From then on, new AWARE members would have to sign a declaration that goes something like this. AWARE's values, we embrace diversity, we promote understanding and acceptance of diversity, we respect the individual and the choices she makes in life, and support her when needed. We recognise the human rights of all, regardless of gender, so that everyone can realise their aspirations. That's it. What do you think of it? Yeah, it's fine, I can join. <laughs> it's like a security check, you know, stop and declare yourself. We do have in our membership rules, bylaws and so on, that we can kick members out if we found that their behaviour does not live up to these values. So we do have that as a fallback. Today, AWARE membership sits at around 600, a sheer drop from the peak of 3,000 during the saga, of course. Associate members were finally given the vote in 2016, though subject to a cap of 25% of total votes. 
Also, to be nominated onto a WARES board, you need to have been an active member for at least two years. That's right, it's a board now, not an executive committee. That's because after the saga, AWARE decided to professionalize. Instead of a president running AWARE, there would be a full-time executive director. In 2010, that person was selected. It was, drumroll please, Corinna Lim. I had startup experience. I could run a team. I felt like this was my calling. This was the right time. Emotionally, psychologically, it felt right. Turning AWARE into a professional organisation was not without controversy either. Some long-time volunteer members worried that paying people to do the work of feminism would destroy its integrity. Even today, we have members, we have older members who question the the wisdom of having people paid to be spokesperson, for example, for issues rather than your very passionate president. Dana Lam doesn't agree. After all, AWARE is still a non-profit. The staff aren't paid much. I think that that is a little bit short-sighted. This person applied for this job because this issue is important to her. And your organisation is a place where she can use her skills and earn a living for that instead of relying on the volunteer whose attention span is very limited for you, which is what we were struggling with. There is a risk that when organisations become more professional, that they also become more conservative. Sociologist Tio Yu Yen, the AWARE member who cheered the old guard on at the EGM, served on the board from 2010 to 2016. She witnessed the rocky road to professionalisation under three different presidents, including Winifred Lowe, an HR expert who tenaciously stewarded AWARE into version 2.0. Yu Yen remembers the arguments. In my first board, there was like table slamming and stuff. I would say it was quite painful. <laughs> but would you achieve anything? Oh, of course. Yeah. So I think that's always the big question. As Yu Yen explains, professionalising AWARE was always going to involve some trade-offs. So there might be some self-censorship? There probably is. I think all of us self-censor. Mm. I think that that's important to acknowledge. And we should not pretend we don't self-censor. Because once you pretend, I think that is when the censorship becomes even more insidious. I think the important thing for AWARE going forward to my mind is to maintain that tension, meaning it is very important for the board and for volunteers and for staff to continue to be made up of people who disagree with one another. And it's very, very important to keep safeguarding that space to argue and quarrel. I mean, I cannot emphasise how much I've gained from learning how to quarrel, in a way. It must continue to be uncomfortable all the time. I think of this discomfort as a necessary thing. Today, in 2020, AWARE has a staff of around 30, which has vastly different capabilities than the volunteer-run shop of yore. I often say this phrase, collective action, People can come here and do the work and really contribute to a larger set of goals. And people can become more than, we can become more than the sum of our parts. That's the thing. This organization is no longer about one or two personalities. You know, when you think about AWARE today, you don't think about who the president is necessarily anymore. 
Contrast this to what AWARE was before, which was always attached to who was president. When we come here, what we create together, we cannot do without each other. I, I am immensely proud with the AWARE I see today. AWARE Today is still run by Executive Director Corinna Lim, who is ringing in 11 years in that role. Of all the things that we have done, I think one of the, the major ones that I am, feel very proud of the team having achieved is really sexual assault care and advocacy, and also the research in this area. We started this in 2011, the Sexual Assault Befriender Service, which morphed into the Sexual Assault Care Centre. And so, 10 years later, we have the most expertise in this area, and it is so badly needed, right? As an example, when hashtag MeToo happened in the world, the number of people who came to see us increased by 79%. The research and advocacy, we didn't have any department in the past. We now have five people in this area. We're focusing on the aging of Singapore, which is going to place a disproportionate burden on women in Singapore, as we have to provide the elder care more than men. And Inequality is the other major issue. In 2015, we won a charity transparency and governance awards uh, given by the government. This was actually a real boost and a recognition of how tightly run we are. We are big sister to many of the smaller women's organisations and organisations focused on gender issues. If you ask Kanwaljit Soin, AWARE founding member, Singapore's first female-nominated member of parliament and a resolute active ager as she nears 80, how consequential the AWARE saga was, she shrugs. If there had been no EGM, or we would have definitely started another AWARE. And it is in, in a bit like Singapore. Who wants to take over Singapore, right? We have no resources, natural resources and all. If, if you take over Singapore, you have to win their hearts and minds. So AWARE is the same thing. Okay, take our premises, change our constitution. We'll just go and form another AWARE somewhere else again. More than a decade later, the saga's impact on Singapore is unequivocal to some, like Yu Yen. There were many things that were still less speakable than they are now. Things have changed and obscure to others who see little progress and some regress in areas such as LGBT rights or freedom of expression. To many AWARE members and allies, the memory of the saga is both an occasion for pride and an injunction to work harder and be braver. As activists, you cannot think of social change as happening linearly and in one direction. You have to think in terms of the long game and a long arc. There's a wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark. She reminds me when I'm in the dark <laughs> to think about all the things that have changed, for example, about what can and cannot be said about women in society. We are here on Earth for a very short time and all we can do is contribute to the wave. If you are doing it because you are expecting to be a hero, uh, you're, you're not going to last very long. It gives me hope that civil society will continue to thrive in Singapore, although I wish that it was much more active, although I wish we had much more space than is given to us. There's so many ideas, so much enthusiasm, so much of passion that has been curtailed because of the fear by business and by government 
oh, that civil society will upset the apple cart or the durian cart or whatever cart you want. So I think that is their loss. But we in civil society continue to work under whatever constraints we have. And we, we, we have to energize ourselves. Awareness is really only the beginning of the game. And that the difficulty really comes in the long tail when we start to look at you know, how do we handle all this complexity and where does it go and what do we do as a society. We have as good a chance as any other nation in the world to address this or fix this. We have an excellent foundation itself of basically playing a fair game. But sometimes this conversation, it cannot be just the state declaring it. There has to be a conversation that citizens have. And what we're seeing itself with this increasingly woke generations of people, right, is that people are more willing to step up to the plate, right, to have these kind of conversations. And I'm grateful to say over here that I think civil society organisations are concerned with both levels of work, of advocacy work, but also the capacity building work necessary to can carry these difficult conversations all the way through. The Aware Saga led people to think more deeply about what really mattered to them. It sparked heated debate and soul-searching about issues like the role of religion, secularism, sexuality and justice and equality. These are conversations that continue today, and this can only be good for Singapore. The Aware Saga is a powerful reminder to keep standing up and speaking out for what you believe in, because civil liberties are not set in stone. Progress doesn't just occur on its own. Everything you believe in can be overturned in the course of one life-changing day. And when that happens, where will you be? For this podcast, we reached out to Kyo Su Mien and the members of the New Guard. They either declined or did not respond to our interview requests. Saga is hosted by me, Bharati Jagdish. It was written and produced by Jasmine Ng and Kelly Liao. Audio post-production by Mocha Chai Laboratories, with sound design by Chong Sin Ying and Amelia Sai. Noraina Sapari was our associate producer and Bali Kaur Jaswal was our story consultant. Original score by Wei Shen Din of the band Dot Jif, and additional music from the Free Music Archive under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. Artwork by John Albrecht. Gwen Lim was our marketing strategist. We received editorial assistance from Kaspan Paraskasis Narayan, Lim Tzu Tian, Megan Tan, and a tireless group of interns. We're also grateful to Sply Studios and Neon Sound. Visit aware.org.sg slash saga for bonus clips, links to archival material, an interactive timeline, character map, and more. <laughs>